The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Clean Coders and its employees. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Clean Coders podcast. This week, we're talking to James Grenning. James, do you want to introduce yourself and say hello to our audience? Hi, everybody. I'm James. Nice to meet you. Yeah, so uh, I've been involved in software development for about 40 years. Uh, a good friend of mine is Uncle Bob Martin. We met early in our careers. We both were working in embedded systems at that time. I continued in it, continue to. When I was working for Uncle Bob in the late 90s, we ran into extreme programming. It kind of changed uh, both of our lives, I'm sure. My mission really is to help people, well, to help bring to embedded systems engineers modern practices and you know test-driven development is one of these things that can really help and so that's kind of my mission for my company which is called wingman software and uh, i do training and coaching awesome are you freelancing or moonlighting or maybe you've thought about going out on your own every week we have a group of developers at various stages of the freelancing journey on the freelancer show to talk about becoming better at freelancing we also bring in experts to talk about marketing seo and delivering high quality to clients so if you're interested in going freelance or you are freelance, check it out at freelancershow.com. It's interesting. There are a couple of things I want to pick on there. The first one is, is that you've been writing software for about 40 years and I've can, been converting oxygen into carbon dioxide for about 40 years. So uh, we have that in common. Um, but yeah, I took a couple of embedded classes when I was in college. Man, I remember, you know, I'm used to having like these uh, visual debuggers and all this nice, nice stuff. And then we're writing code for embedded systems in C or assembly. And it's like, it doesn't work. Well, where doesn't it work? <laughs> you know, yeah. you start looking in registers or memory locations or crap like that. You know, I mean, sometimes you could get in, you could actually get it to pop up some kind of message that gives you some clue, but a lot of times it was tough. So I'm wondering, you know, depending on how far into the embedded systems you get, how, how do you actually get, tests around your embedded systems are you because it felt like it was all very close to the hardware and so you'd essentially yeah, so, run it through the hardware and it'd work right yeah well so there's a it's kind of a big question you've just asked here which let me see if i can ramble for a few minutes about it but i'll go back to yeah. like when i was uh, brand new out of college and kind of got down this path totally by accident of course but the company i was working for we were building the first weather radar display system, color weather radar display system for the FAA. There were three of us working on that, and there was a big specially made graphics tube, 500, K, or 500 by 512 by 512 matrix. And we didn't have an extra serial port to print out debug messages. We had 12K of RAM and 12K of ROM. And somehow we worked a miracle and made this thing work. Well, we did have to once the parts became available to have 16K of RAM and 16K of ROM, then we graduated to that. You know, the employer wasn't that happy that we had to go use these other parts, but they're getting cheaper anyway. So debugging in that world was really a nuisance. You know, so just to say that, and a lot of that work was extremely close to the hardware. Today, what you might call an embedded system is probably not going to, well, there's going to be some of those really close to the hardware. Like you might have a pen that has a microprocessor in it because it's uh -huh. cheaper to have a, a digital, a little microchip controlling uh, the click on the pen to decide if to turn on a light or not over some kind of other switch. It's kind of ridiculous, but computers are in everything now. I guess in my head, I never made the connection between IoT and embedded. 
Yeah. Okay. So yeah. Okay. So IoT. So that's the topic of the series I did with Bob. But okay, I could relate those to you. But you, I never got around to answering your first question really, except for telling a story yeah. of like what it used to be like when I was a kid back when you were a baby. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, I was uh, trying you know, to make you okay. I was. Yeah, embedded system embedded systems have changed a lot. In the late '90s, I was working on an embedded system that each prototype costs about a million dollars, and they were pretty substantial computers. I mean, so what we think of an embedded system could have a huge range. Now, for me, given uh-huh. that I want to train embedded systems engineer, I have a very broad definition, which means it's something with a computer in it that you don't like treat like a general purpose computer. You, ter- you right. treat it like a specialized thing. Even though it might have a PC buried in it, that could still be embedded software by my definition. Right. You know, trying to hit a wide market. So one of the things we do in embedded is try to separate code that it's more effective to test it manually or with hardware in the loop from code that could be pure software. You know, if you imagine you're some device that you might have, some of the code is about interacting with the hardware. Mm-hmm. And other parts are about the business application, you know, the, the product functionality that it's trying to present to you. So right. there's layering that we would do in an embedded system to separate the hardware from hardware and operating system from the code that might have a long, useful life. So, you know, you might take a, a calculator, for example. Part of an electronic calculator might be getting key presses turned into what number they represent. And then inside the calculator are the basic functions, add, subtract, multiply, divide. So you could certainly test in a uh, test environment all the calculator functions. And then maybe it wouldn't be that effective to test drive, you know, the interaction with the hardware, although it is possible. And it's one of the modules in my training class that we get into is how close to the hardware can you get? And we can get to within one instruction of the hardware. Yeah, so how do you start test driving that? Let, let's take the calculator example for a minute. How, how do you test drive the software in there? Well, so let's just say that uh, I've never done one, so I'm just going to make this up. You know, that's part of being in consulting is making stuff up. <laughs> <laughs> I can, I can identify kind of, with that. If you kind of guess right a lot, then it, you know it's not bad. So I'm going to imagine that, let's first say that the hardware is under development. And maybe uh-huh. I've got a specification from the uh, hardware engineer of what my calculator is going to look like. And, you know, he gave me this IO map to the C programming language. Hardware looks like a data structure. So if you write to that data structure, it might change the character on an LED display. If you read from a a member of that data structure, you might get a character or a key press, right? And so Mm -hmm. uh, a data structure is a, you know, so it's called memory mapped IO. At the edges of the system, there's these data structures that happen to not be data. They happen to not be memory. They happen to be devices. So I'm going to need to write some code that interacts with that memory map display. And if it's simple straight line logic, like, hmm, is this the right offset in the data structure to find out if there's a character waiting, right? You know, so if I read that and I get back a one, it says there's a character waiting. Waiting. If it gets back a zero, then uh-huh. there isn't a character waiting. So there's some logic up right above that that is, how do I find out when there's a character there? So there'd be a little bit of code that maybe has to sit around and check periodically to see if there's a character right. ready. Once there's a character ready, that could get handed off to something else. Oh, mm-hmm. Here's a character. Maybe it gets put into a FIFO, first in, first out, circular buffer, yep. or something like that. 
On the other side of that thing would be some code that knows what to do if something gets put in there. Oh, it, there's a series of digits followed by a plus sign. And so it would read all the digits. So on the other side of that FIFO is pure software, if you will, that's mm-hmm. going to say, well, one, two, three plus four, five, six equals, and then it knows, you know, so interpreting all those characters, it would come up with, right. well, whatever the answer to that. I should have done something easier. One zero zero plus two zero zero. Then the answer would have been three hundred. Now, what does it do with that? It has to give it back to something to interact with the hardware. So there might be a another. I don't know if it'd be a FIFO or not, but a uh, a way to hand back the result to say, you know, write this to the display. So from a test driven development perspective, we might load up that circular buffer with a sequence of characters and do whatever it is to make that code react. All right. So we might load up that. We might load up that circular buffer with the, you know, a pretty easy to solve math problem and then tell it to go and then see if the answer that came back that it sent to the right to the display was the right answer. Now, writing to the display would be some kind of fake so we could intercept those calls. And so, so yeah, so the hardware, you can either simulate it or you can just test the handler, which is pure software on the back end and do some TDD on it that way. Yeah. So you mentioned simulator. There might be some roles for simulators, but typically, let's use, uh, I'm going to guess that the audience listening to us, the people listening to us, you know, maybe have written a test case or wondering about it. But so in the test case that I just described, the first thing we do, we populate this FIFO with the series of characters. Right. And then whatever the thing is that triggers the algorithm to run that does the calculation, we would trigger that at that point. And then that part would actually write to another API, if you will, to say, put the stuff on the display. Now, in test, we'd intercept that with a spy or a fake or a mock or something. And so my test case could run whatever are the interesting scenarios there to exercise it. The code that interacts directly with the hardware, if it has complexity greater than one or two, you're probably going to want to test drive it. But if the code is just like an adapter, from, you know, I call put to the display, and then all, then all it does is it just copies those bytes into another place. It's so simple that there's no real reason to test it. You test it when you integration test. That would be one approach. Now, if the, if the driver has complex functions, and in my training class, we do a flash driver uh, where we're writing memory, writing to a flash uh, memory device, where, you know, there's a flow chart, the logic of a flow chart that we have to interpret and uh, get right. It's possible to test drive that and then marry it to the hardware later. You know, so it kind of depends on the complexity of what we're looking at and whether or not we might choose to, to uh, test drive something or not. And also, if we ever think we'll have to touch that code again. Yeah, that makes sense. It reminds me a little bit of kind of the state machines that we did when I was, I was an electrical engineering major in college. So, you know, we had ah. the state machines and, you know, thought through all that. And then I got much more into the low-level chip design, which is why I was doing things like embedded software and interrupt handlers and (laughs) all kinds of stuff like that, which was really, really fascinating. You know, you're you're paging your own memory. So yeah, Yeah. I mean... So there's boundaries in there. You could imagine, you know, so, you know, a paging algorithm, for instance, Mm -hmm. least recently used paging algorithm or something you might have to implement down underneath the, the hood where most applications know about it. But, you know, so you want it to work right. And you could have a, you know, wait, is this thing dirty? Do I have to write it back out? You know, there's things like that. Well, I don't know if you're, mm-hmm. if you're thinking about paging as a way to get to more memory. We had to do some of that stuff in yeah. the early 80s. 
having an 8085 processor with 64K of memory <laughs> yeah. available. Um, yeah. C code can fill that up really fast. And yep. so we had to do some pretty silly stuff to increase the memory space beyond the 16-bit address range of the 8085. Yeah, we did a bunch of that when I was in college. We had a simulator that we were writing it on, and you could limit the memory. And so you got extra credit if you could actually limit the memory down to two pages, right? Mm. Okay, <laughs> so, yeah. make it small. Yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, all of that kind of thing. I'm just, I'm just curious how you would test drive something like that. So you made something and it was too big. And uh-huh. I had to make it smaller, right? Yep. So we're, now what we're talking about is refactoring. So if I had this thing, which was bigger than the two pages, but it worked. And if you had a test for it that you could run, right, to make sure a, a suite of tests that you could run for it. And I had some ideas on how to make it smaller through using mm-hmm. tricky stuff or maybe through redesign. You have tests, you've got tests in place for the behavior that you want. And now you could start it as a refactoring activity to try to make it small. So there's, right. there's, there's something that I think I'm quoting Kent Beck, make it work, right? Just if you don't have uh-huh. the functionality, it doesn't matter. Uh, maybe being small, you don't have it without the functionality. But if you can't make it work at all and it being big, <laughs> um, yeah. you're not going to be able to make it work small right from the start. So make it work, make it right, make your design so that you know, you un- people can understand it. And then right. the, the other variable that Kent was talking about was make it fast. Now, make it fast enough. I think for you, you'd have, in this case, make it small. Right. Um, but now you've proven you can make it do anything. And you've got as clean a design as you know how to make it at that point. And now we've got to make it smaller. And so uh, you've got the behavior nailed down in the test. So you might be able to do that. Makes sense. So when you're teaching these classes... I guess most of the time I'm talking to web developers and things in in my area of expertise and my podcasts, web developers and mobile developers. And so they're usually not dealing with some of the things that come up in embedded software. Where do you see people actually working in embedded software where this kind of thing is going to pay off? And what kind of things are they building? Yeah. There's an enormously wide (laughs) set of applications. People applying test-driven development to... who, Who would even know that there's jobs in building some of the stuff that people are building. There's mm-hmm. code in one of those? Yeah, okay. It's kind of the high end. Look at telephone switches and such. Um, right. All that, I would, you know, they don't take on the characteristic of a small embedded system, but uh, they are embedded systems just the same and yeah. certainly test drivable. Okay, so there's, you know, you're probably working in a, a Linux environment or some type of thing there. So obviously there's one extreme. On the other extreme, I've worked with companies that do oil and gas exploration, and they might have a microcontroller down at the drill head buried underneath the Arctic Ocean. And their code is looking for, is is some role in looking for oil. Maybe by it's turning on a, a neutron source and getting back some data that it can tell, you know, that the scientists will be able to tell that there's oil there or whatever it might be. So here's a very small device buried underneath the the ocean. You would like it to work because it cost, well, at least in the day when I was working with this company, if they had a bug and they had to pull this device out, it cost $7 million a day. Oh, gosh. (laughs) (laughs) And so There's some incentive for it to work the first time. That's right. You definitely want it working. And it's kind of interesting the way they communicate with these devices. There's no pair of wires that goes down there. 
uh-huh. there's no radio waves that will make it down there. They basically are using something like Morse code tapping on the stuff they call mud that fills the wells. And they, uh-huh. you know, they're basically doing a <laughs> some kind of low bit rate, you know, audio way of communicating with these devices. Right. Kind of interesting. So it's all over the place. Telephones, you might not look at it as a, a telephone as an embedded system, but there are certainly many aspects to these devices which are embedded. Mm-hmm. You've got aviation. I get some kind of fun clients. This one client of, of mine is uh, Dynon Avionics. They make the avionics for people that want to build their own airplane. That sounds crazy to me, but it sounds like a uh, just a blast. Yeah. Like Bob Martin's son was building his own air, airplane and he put, this is like the Cadillac of aviation, you know, gear for the, uh-huh. for the hobby airplane maker. And uh, Bob's son, Micah had used their stuff. And he actually knew some of the people there because as he's building his plane, he gets a call and then talk to the engineers and the support people to find out answers to his questions. Kind of cool. Cisco systems, internet equipment, mm-hmm. telecom is really big. I could look at my list of people I've talked to, but, you know, it's all over the place. There's a computer in everything now. Yep. And if I understand it right, there's probably certainly well over a million people doing embedded systems development. And uh, by the way, more of them need to buy my book because only about 15,000 of them bought my book. <laughs> What's your book? What's the title? It's called Test Driven Development for Embedded C. Ah, uh, gotcha. Yeah, people seem to like it. The the reason I that I asked, you know, what what kinds of companies you've worked with and what kinds of things they're doing, is that I'm I'm a little curious. Then, when they call you up and they say, James, we need your help, what are they typically looking for help with? You know, as far as like what they're doing and, and their approach yeah. and things like that. Well, typically, when a company contacts me, it's usually because somebody there was intrigued by the idea of test driven development. They probably bought my book or read some articles, and they, they're a self-starting kind of person. They kind of got the idea, but now they can't get anybody else to try it because right. it's such an insane idea, right? To write tests for code you don't have yet. That'll typically be the starting point. And then when that person starts getting good results and they tell their boss the reason they're getting good results is because they're doing this other thing, then there's some pull. And my typical client will have a few people that are really excited about test-driven development several people that are thinking it's the worst thing that you could ever possibly do. And some other people kind of in the middle. And so my typical Monday morning has a fair amount of resistance. And then if I was doing stuff on site with people anymore, (laughs) um, by Thursday, (laughs) by Thursday, often the most vocal people against test-driven development are coaching the people in the middle that are kind of along for the ride, you know, so... (laughs) They're what they're the reason that they're contacting me is because they're getting tired of chasing defects. So yeah. one of my big messages is that test driven development, the first reason you might decide you want to do test driven development is I'm getting sick of chasing bugs. So what if I didn't have to chase bugs as much? Right. And um, I wrote a couple of articles about uh, test driven development. I call it uh, the physics of test driven development. It's mm-hmm. on my blog, blog.wingman-sw.com. So I compare test-driven development to what I call debug-later programming. And in, uh, right. in debug-later programming, people go and make mistakes, and then they don't know they made a mistake, and then later someone discovers a mistake, or maybe somebody discovers somebody else's mistake, and now they got to go fix a problem. How long does it take to find the root cause of a problem? Mm-hmm. Right? And so you know, that's, that's kind of a, a short logic chain of why it would be valuable. 
And then after that, it's all about getting people used to it. You know, they got to try it to see what it means to them. Right. That makes sense. So then what's, what's sort of the outline of your training? I mean, if you go in and you're training people, like you said, you kind of start on Monday and you go through Thursday or something. What, what, what does that look like? In the beginning of teaching people test-driven development at Object Mentor, Bob's company in the early 2000s, we kind of had this idea that if we just showed people test-driven development, extreme programming, they would just want to do it. We kind of forgot that we were hard sells ourselves. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, I kind of pretty quickly discovered, no, people aren't just going to do it because, you know, because I might think it's a good idea. Yeah. Engineers want to solve problems. So what I've set up in my training class is an experience. So people will experience test-driven development. I, there's three cycles, typically, of uh, present a problem, demo a bit of a solution, then let the uh, attendees continue mm-hmm. the demonstration to finish something of interest. And then after that, we'll do a debrief on the experience so we can find out what people's reactions to it are. And then that pattern repeats itself three times. The first time through, it's a small problem where we're trying to just get the cadence of test-driven development down and kind of have people understand that it means incremental, iterative, small mm-hmm. cycles, all the stuff that uh, you know you wouldn't know unless you actually studied it. The debrief section is really interesting because now people are experiencing it. So after, after experiencing test-driven, people are, they like some things. Right, right. Kind of nice to have those tests. They found some problems. Yep. The feedback was cool, but then they're concerned about some things. This is going to take too long. I won't think of the tests. We have to write so much test code. Then you have to maintain the tests. Aren't we making a bigger problem to maintain? Blah, blah, blah. So after that first experience, we, you know, pretty much the first day is get an experience and then we're doing this debrief. And I give them my perspective on test-driven development and kind of my experience of it actually doesn't take longer. Well, you have to learn it. That takes some time, but it doesn't mm-hmm. take longer. And people will confuse what I'm doing with trying to convince them. But I'm, I keep telling them, I'm not really trying to convince you, but I'm, I'm trying to let you see that I look at it differently. And my experience is different than what yours, your experience is new. And I've been doing this a while. And so here's what I see. I see that it actually makes me go faster and I get to spend less time debugging. And the payoff, there's a payoff now and there's a payoff in the future. That kind of opens people's minds up so that the next two cycles, they're more willing accomplices. That's the first first couple of days. And then we spend a day or two in their code, which is, of course, always extremely interesting. Because, <laughs> I'll bet. Because people's code was never, no one ever thought about tests before. They only thought about, mm-hmm. well, you know, some people have, some areas have better design than others, but right. everyone always has a big, huge skeleton in their closet somewhere. So we, I do these... Uh, one or two day legacy code workshops where it's, you know, amazing the kind of stuff that we have uncovered. One of the big problems in one of the first groups I was doing these with was the uh, silicon manufacturer makes a specialized C compiler. And I'm quoting, uh-huh. air quoting C right now. Uh, basically, they add keywords to the language and it's no longer C to give you access right. to interrupts and to registers. Registers all of a sudden look like global variables. And we had to overcome a lot of interesting stuff with that. Right. And it is all possible because of the extreme magic of the uh, preprocessor. You can do just about anything. But I also tell people that when they use one of my engineering techniques, I mean hacks to get 
to get this code <laughs> under test. If you use one of these hacks, it means you really need to go re-engineer something. But right. first, first, we're going to get the code under test. And then, you know, if you use one of my hacks, like right. pound include test double, for instance, if you've got a header file that's not portable, it only works with the silicon manufacturer's, you know, integer sizes or whatever. So I've got a portability problem here. Uh, there's a way around that. I can make up a new header file that has the same capabilities, right. but that's portable. Okay, now that's a super hack, especially if they go change something. So what do we do about it? Then I've also got advice about, you know, what would I do about that problem if I had it so I don't have to do this hack? You know, so I mean engineering yep. technique. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> now, are all of your hacks or engineering techniques in the book? No, they're not actually because... During the book writing, I was an idealist. (laughs) (laughs) Aren't we all at some point? (laughs) Yeah, I did my job as an idealist in the book. Uh, And pretty much if you're starting from scratch with C code, the book is great. Uh, Well, well, of course, I'm very complimentary to my own book. The book is giving you good advice on how to structure code. C, having started in C, gone to C++ and a bunch of other languages, then going back to C, I'm Uh bringing back... OO ideas into C and kind of, you know, well-named things and small functions and information hiding and a bunch of these things, programming to interfaces. Right. Uh, So that's what the book is about a lot. Then as soon as I started doing legacy code workshops, I discovered, oh, hmm, this code isn't really C code. I need, you know, in the book I said, Mm -hmm. you know, you can use a preprocessor for substitution, but don't. That was like my short chapter on that. And then when I got back to the real world of code that I just, you know, that I never wrote, but other people did, it's like, now what do we do with this code that depends on this special header file that isn't C, you know, mm-hmm. that says where a variable should be located in memory. That's not C. You know, they, they would have a declaration of a variable and then they'd have the word at, A-T, and then you could put in a mm-hmm. hex value to say where to put it in memory. It's like, that is not C, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so with something like that, we would, at first, just take that whole statement and try to wrap it in a macro. And you wrap it in a macro to hide the special stuff that that compiler wants. Right. And then for off-target, you use the macro, and it basically expands into uh, just a variable declaration because you don't care where it is. Right. When you're at a, you know, if, if it's not the target, you don't care where you put it. And so yep. a number of techniques uh, on my blog I have, uh, or on my website, I've got a resources page, and on there is uh, how to get your legacy C into a test harness. And I've got this recipe, basically, for dragging unwilling code into test, and um, pretty much all code is unwilling. One of the steps in the process is don't panic. And if you run into something, <laughs> you run into something where you know that you think, oh, there's no way I can test this code now. If you run into that, you go read my roadblock section. And if you find the problem there, there'll be a detailed article about what to do about it. You know, like integer sizes, you're, you've got to use the, the Acme types.h H file, which only builds with the Acme hardware, right? You know, so what do we do about that? Okay, so there's a, there's a formula for that or a, a blog post about what to do. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, I got a link to that in the show notes. Oh, great, and, thanks. Uh, yeah, I'll also put a link into your information on your book. There's a, I'll send you a URL for that if you'd like, because I've got one that has Bob's uh, forward and another forward by a respected guy in the embedded systems world. So it's on, it's on my uh, 
if you go to my the front page of wingman-sw.com, you can see the book icon on the bottom and click on that. But I'll I can yeah. send you that link. A couple of years ago, I put out a survey asking people what topics they wanted us to cover on devchat.tv. And I got two overwhelming responses. One was from the JavaScript community. They wanted a React show. And the other one was from the Ruby community and they wanted an Elixir show. So we started both. The React show though is React Roundup. And every week we bring in people from the React community and we have conversations with them about React, about the community, about open source, about what goes into React, how to build React apps, and what's going on and changing in the React community. So if you're looking to keep current on the current React ecosystem and what's going on in React, you definitely need to be checking out React Roundup. You can find it at reactroundup.com. Well, this is really interesting. So, I mean, I'm not an embedded software developer. You could be. You're an EE. (laughs) That's true. Yeah, I was EE and then I transitioned to computer engineering, which just meant that I was drawing pictures that could be printed onto silicon. That's basically what the way that worked. <laughs> and any software we wrote was just right, right down to the metal, you know. So yeah. we were writing uh, VLSI and stuff like that. If somebody wanted to get into embedded systems, is there kind of a, a route to that or a career track to that? I think you know, depending on what university, if you know, if you're in school, there certainly is, mm-hmm. and it would be probably associated with computer engineering or EECS yeah. or something. When I went to school. For some reason, they were calling it information engineering. I don't know why. And I didn't seek it out or anything. I kind of just bumped into it, and it turned out that that stuff fit in my head. So right. I had some fun doing it. So I was actually trying to avoid computers in college, and, <laughs> and then this happened. <laughs> and who would have known? <laughs> There's also a, a friend of mine just posted a couple of days ago a uh, lockdown internship, you know, a virtual internship. You know, what, what could you do? to learn about embedded systems while we're in lockdown on your own. And I could give you a link to that too. I'm sure he wouldn't mind. Yeah, that would be great. You know, so embedded has this mystique around it. And in a way, all software is the same. Mm -hmm. Some of the problems you have to solve in embedded are very unique, like timing and dealing with, you know, directly with the hardware. It's a different problem domain. But then most software problems are solved by adding a level of indirection, some famous mm-hmm. computer person said, I forget which one. So in, in, in web applications, you've got to manage dependencies on databases and stuff in the back end. Or, or your back right. end has to manage the user interface, the page transitions, and a database. In an embedded system, you have to manage in it the, the hardware. Hardware is kind of like a database, if you will. It remembers stuff. I mean, if you actually turn on a motor and set it at 100 RPM, uh, <laughs> it's still doing that. <laughs> yep. And so if I want to test my code with a real motor and I've got to spin it up to some, you know, you know, I don't know, 5,000 RPM or something, that takes time and energy. And then you've got to slow it down. So if that's in my test loop, having to actually interact with real hardware on every test, that means it's going to take me forever to do stuff. Instead, what we're going to do is, you know, that part that actually spins up a motor, I could treat it like the interface to a database and say, spin up the motor to 5,000 RPM with all the necessary parameters. And then on the other side of that boundary is complex code that knows how to do that. And and I'm underplaying this right now because I don't actually know about motors. I've worked with some people that know about them and (laughs) I understand they're a complex piece. But uh, the thing on top of that, like, should we go to 5,000 RPM, 4,000 or 2,000? That's usually where the bugs are. (laughs) 
mm-hmm. <laughs> this application code that decides what the RPM should be. Right. You know, and so we start to separate things and make things testable in different areas. So, but you know, so embedded software, I like to say embedded engineers, you know, you are special, but that doesn't matter because <laughs> software is software in these. That's true. You know, separating concerns is something that works for embedded software or for web software. Now for me, I yeah. find developing websites to be really hard. Which is funny because most of the website focused developers I talk to, you, you ask them about stuff like this, like this, the embedded systems and things like that. And they, they think that sounds really hard. And yeah, my experience, like I felt like for me, for mobile for a long time, it just felt like this otherworldly thing. Right. And then I got in and I actually was like, all right, I'm going to write a web app or a mobile app. And I did it two days. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's just a matter of familiarity and it feels like a black box until you actually open the box. Yep. Well, I think there's a mystique on the embedded software too, which is, oh, we're so special because, you know, yeah, okay, there's some domain knowledge about electrical engineering you might need to know. Yeah, um, fair. I, I know just so little that it's not really, you know, so there's this mystique about it, and it. But then the embedded systems developer might say, oh, that's only web programming. Oh, go try it. <laughs> yeah. Right? It's, it's not so easy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You come bang your head against user interfaces for a while and I'll go bang my head against hardware for a little while. Yeah, right. Whatever it yeah. might be. Ruby yeah. on Rails. I mean, it's like, okay, so that's supposed to that's make That's what it I easy got started me. in. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we're kind of running short on time. If people want to find you online, where do they find you? Oh, I'm on Twitter at JW Grenning. And that would be my LinkedIn handle too. However, whatever goes in front of that, J-W-G-R-E-N-N-I-N-G. My company's wingman-sw.com, wingman software. And it's a good metaphor for my business because I do a lot of coaching. The metaphor comes from, well, my dad actually was a World War II fighter pilot. And I've got on my wall here some aviation art. You'll see it on my blog of a P-38, two P-38s over D-Day. I'm sorry, over Normandy on D-Day. And my dad is a wingman in that aviation art. It's called Front Row Seats. After he died, it was a small thing I could do to honor him. And also a really good metaphor for my business. And you see in my logo, the, the P-38 World War II premier fighter aircraft, mm-hmm. um, kind of behind the, the logo. That's how you find me. Nice. Uh, Bob, Bob and I did a kind of a fun thing on uh, Clean Coders, which is an IoT case study. And uh, that was a lot of fun. I was working on a project for my brother's company. We were trying to measure water pressure and collect it at a number of points in a local area uh, network and then provide you know, a user interface on an Android mm-hmm. tablet. So it was a very interesting project to be involved in. And uh, Bob and I did some uh, kind of ad hoc, having fun problem solving together. He got his oscilloscope out and that was a good time. So maybe some of you'd be interested in that if you're, that's a little bit closer to the hardware, although we were working in yeah. Python. But we did have to go and uh, breadboard some stuff. It was a lot of fun. Cool. We'll have to do an episode about that, you know, another time. Sure. For about five years, I've been doing uh, live via the web training courses. But, you know, so if anybody's interested, you come to my website and look at my offerings there. But basically, the course I can deliver on site, I also deliver live over the web. And with a combination of uh, video and live Activities. So there's some activities that people can do on their own that they have to do before each class. 
And this lets me get around a lot of time zone issues. So I, I've worked with people around the world with this training class. We'll have four hours of core time. And, you know, so U.S. and Europe, it's pretty easy to come up with four hours. It works for both of us. Mm -hmm. To get to the Far East or whatever, it's pretty inconvenient for everybody concerned. <laughs> right. And But people have found it to be effective for them. You can see my green screen and stuff. I've, I've invested a lot in learning how to do stuff virtually over the last five years. And then this thing hits, which is kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah. Not, not so interesting. Not so great, but able to keep going. Yep. Awesome. I was going to ask, actually, because I've been asking everybody through this whole period, yeah, what, what are you doing during the quarantine? You know, how, how does that affect your day-to-day -day life? Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, so I spent my last two trips on the road, which usually I have more than I've done that mm -hmm. <laughs> this amount of time. You know, by uh, May of year, I would have traveled a lot more. But I had two trips in January, and one was in Spain. It was the beginning of the I'm over there listening to the news and, uh, you know, mm -hmm. from my, one of my American podcasts, it's like, oh, there's this thing happening in China. It's like, it could be a pandemic. It's like, oh, damn, I hope I can get back. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, so I was kind of concerned while I was there, although nobody else was really that worried about it at that time, but I did get back. I scheduled several of my live via the web training classes and it turns out I had more demand for them than I often do. I filled up classes of, you know, like two weeks apart several of them. And I had a, so I've been doing stuff, you know, that I would have done, well, remote training classes. I'll just schedule them from time to time. And if, if I get people to sign up for them, then I have them. Otherwise I often will just collect a certain amount of people and then, then I'll have it then. But so far this year, I've done uh, uh, maybe four or five of them from down at my place in Florida, which is a good thing. Cool. One of my clients, I was supposed to go out to visit him later in May. And, you know, it looked like that's not going to happen. So about a month ago, I said, well, you know, <laughs> that's not going to happen. What do you want to do it remotely? And so we did it remotely and it worked out really nice. They had a lot of really good questions about, you know, well, it was a, it was a very active group. Sometimes I get a group that's quiet. Sometimes I get a group that has a lot of great questions. So managing yep. my time. Uh, the other thing I'm doing, I've been recording a lot of my content. So for the last half a year, I've been, I've been working on learning the technology to uh, kind of be virtually present in a recording. And to set up my exercises and such so that they could be done by somebody independently and recording, you know, full example solutions so that somebody could try to do what I'm doing and then they could watch me do it. And so I'm getting close to uh, releasing that. And that's going to be a series like my actually beyond what I do in person, because given the video resources, I can actually give extra exercises, you know, optional exercises. If somebody really wants to dig in and learn more, they certainly can. You know, when we're together in a, in a room, we're often constrained by what time people have to leave. But now with the virtual delivery, I think I can give people a pretty good experience and they could learn a lot if they like to learn that way. Yeah, that makes sense. It's, it's been interesting here too, just on the same front. Last year, I don't even know, I should count up how many conferences I went to last year, but let's just say that I got silver medallion status on Delta last year because <laughs> yeah. I traveled so many miles. And a handful of the conferences were here in Salt Lake. So, yeah. you know, that, that doesn't even count, you know, three or four of the conferences that were either here in Salt Lake or that I drove to in Las Vegas. Yeah. But because Las Vegas is four and a half hour drive. By the time I get to the airport, get through security, get on the flight, get off and then get to my hotel. I mean, we're talking like three, three and a half hours anyway. So 
So you might as well take a road trip. Yeah, I take a road trip and then I have my car yeah. <laughs> while I'm down there, which is nice. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, so this year I've kind of short-circuited a lot of that and been putting on online conferences. And so oh, I have cool. the JavaScript conference coming up next week as we record this. It will be over by the time we this goes live. But mm-hmm. I'm doing one on iOS. Bob's actually speaking at that one in June. I'm doing one on React Native in July. I'm doing Rails in August. And yeah, just giving people that opportunity to come together and talk, right? And so I've yep. got the I've got the networking <laughs> sessions planned and how I'm gonna do that. And I've got a lot of this other stuff figured out. Of course, it's all technology, so who knows if it's gonna behave, but yep. yeah, right. it's it's the same kind of thing you're talking about your classes and doing your training online and things like that. And can can you imagine trying to do this 10, 20, 30 years ago? I mean, <laughs> You know, we're, we're extremely fortunate that we can do this this way. I know. It's like, and there's, well, there's so many people that can't work this yeah. way whose jobs just don't, you know, I really feel fortunate that I can do yeah. work this way that my family can. Yeah. Um, but uh, the virtual thing is, uh, well, for us, us that can do it, it will be here to stay. And uh, yep. <laughs> you're mentioning this online conference. So I've got uh, an online conference later this month. It's an embedded conference. I've got invited to to uh, present at it, which means recording something and having them play that. Uh, but I guess that might mean it'll be available for longer than just the conference. Mm-hmm. I'm going to make myself available during it for questions and stuff and such too. So I'll probably have a Zoom meeting going so people could join that afterwards. But, uh, yeah, we're doing I, all of our talks live. So Yeah, cool. There's, there's a lot to be said for that. It makes it feel more real. Yep. I've just invested in a, uh, a new Linux box. My son's a gamer. Uh-huh. And uh, my... My poor MacBook Pro, which is the best one I could, you know, that they made in the size I wanted, can't keep up with the video demands I'm trying to make of it. Having yeah. Zoom and Open Broadcast Studio, you ever heard of that? Yep, OBS, yep. OBS, yeah. So having those two things running on my computer while I'm trying to show Keynote and a bunch of other stuff just made my computer just sit there and, you know, almost me- burned a hole in my desk. Yeah. But so my son, who's a gamer, said, hey, you got to help me make a powerful machine for a video. And so I just got it working a few days ago. And uh, we're using it right now. And, nice. Uh, yeah, it's a eight-core AMD processor, six, 32 gigabytes of RAM, and a two-terabyte SSD, and all the stuff. Kind of interesting to put together. And I had this yep. wonderful experience, which was, you know, I'm afraid to turn it on. I turned it on. Nothing happens. Like, oh, <laughs> <man>. <laughs> yep. Recheck everything, go to bed, recheck everything in the morning, and then it worked. <laughs> there you go. Yep. So, well, good deal. Well, hopefully, people go check you out if they want to hire you, then wingman sw.com. Yeah. Thanks for coming and chatting with me for an hour. James. Sure. Yeah. Happy to do it. And uh, thanks a lot for the invite. Yep. If there's anything you want to talk about, follow on later, let me know. Yeah, definitely. I, I tend to follow up on this show about every two to three months. Okay. Because that's how long it takes me to go through everybody that's done a series on Clean Coders. <laughs> All right. Well, so, thanks, yeah. for, thanks for doing the, uh, the Clean Coder podcast. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot com to learn more.